Welcome to the Not Sorry Art Podcast. I'm Sari Shrike, the artist and creator behind Not Sorry Art and Not Sorry Art School. I'm so excited to talk art and creativity with you. So grab a drink, grab a snack, and let's dive in. This episode of the Not Sorry Art Podcast is brought to you by Not Sorry Art School. Not Sorry Art School is my online art school I created two and a half years ago to supplement my workshop teaching when the pandemic hit. It became a really great resource where I could put all of my knowledge about representational painting into one space. We add one new section or demo every quarter to Not Sorry Art School, and you don't have to pay a membership fee. You pay one time, and then you get access to all of the past videos and all future videos. Not Sorry Art School has an online Facebook group where I have office hours every Monday, and I answer questions within the Not Sorry Art School Facebook group. And there's also a wonderful sense of community on there where people will share their paintings and get great consensual feedback. I'm really excited about Not Sorry Art School. So if you're interested, make sure to click the link and check out the about page to learn more about Not Sorry Art School. Hey y'all, welcome back to the Not Sorry Art Podcast. I'm Sari. Thanks for being here. Today's episode is a special one as it is our season one finale and the final installment of my three-part summer book club series with Megan E. Collins. And y'all, I just have to tell you that this project, the podcast, has been such an incredibly amazing experience since I started it back in January 1 of this year. I cannot believe we're on the back half of the year. So wild. I'm excited to resume the show in January of 2024 for season two. I'm lining up more amazing guest interviews for you guys to enjoy. And soon I'm going to be asking y'all for suggestions about potential guests you'd like to have on the show or even show topics. But for now, it's time for a final summer book club episode of the season in which Megan and I discuss Austin Kleon's 2012 book, Steal Like an Artist. And full disclosure, both of us are a little bit critical of the book's premise as a blanket philosophy for succeeding in the art world, and we point out a couple of problematic consequences of adopting a one-size-fits-all approach to art marketing, and in fact, art stealing, that Cleon proposes. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you read this book, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Share them with me either via email, podcast review, or any other of my social channels. I'm so interested in hearing what y'all have to say, other artists, other creatives, especially as the debate around copying versus inspiration sort of has these moments on social media. Welcome back, Megan E. Collins. Thank you so much for being here. In case you are new to this three-month summer book club series, Megan is a generational analyst and she studies culture. I always like rearrange your title, but basically (laughs) Megan is someone who I highly suggest following. Very insightful, lots of great understanding about culture and young people and trends in a way that isn't just like keeping up with trends. So definitely a person I love floating ideas past and hopefully vice versa. So thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to jump into this book. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I've loved our three-month collab and exchanging ideas around these books and things in general over on TikTok. So this has been so fun. And I'm so excited to talk about this book, even though I didn't like it very much. <laughs> I know. I know. It's so same. Um, I first I'll say like, if someone's listening and they're like, should I listen? Should I read this book? It's quick. Mm-hmm. You can flip through it in, in a couple of hours, depending on your reading pace and stuff like that. But I am a moderate reader and, you know, a couple of hours. I read it over a couple of days, kind of interspersed and there's some illustrations it's a lot of big text so it's an easy read and there's a lot of quotes I would categorize this book as 
an important book just to know what I call this like a, a it's important to know what they are thinking kind of book like didn't necessarily resonate with me in a lot of ways but like a good book to know if you're a creative person you're going to go into a creative in industry like what are sort of the ideas misconceptions current like prominent thought processes around things like obviously stealing and interpretation and creative boundaries. It's a good starting point. But that being said, I would not recommend, particularly if you fall outside of the identity of being like white, male, straight, not having to worry about finances, I would recommend reading this book with a bit of a grain of salt and don't take it as instruction, just like important to know what the culture is thinking. I'm curious what your thoughts on that are. I had the exact same takeaway pretty much um, to your point about like what they're thinking. My thing when I don't like something as an analyst, the most helpful thing I can do with that information is, okay, who is this for? And I think that you nailed the who this for, who this is for audience very well. I came to this book and suggested to you that we read this from two creators who I follow, Colin and Samir. They're YouTubers. They talk about the creator economy they are two dude bros. And I am not surprised <laughs> that they loved this book based on what I know of them and their content. And so it is not for everyone, but to your point of like what they're thinking, that was definitely like my takeaway. And that's why it was both helpful and very frustrating because it touched on a lot of the frustrations and critiques that I currently have of like tech culture and how we engineer for success. So I did not like the book, but I thought it was still worthy, a worthy flip through. And I think that in critiquing this book, we can kind of critique the whole male perspective to art and stealing and all of that. <laughs> yeah, it really volleys itself up for that. And, you know, I will say I was trying to be as like positive as I could before I sat down, like scribbling some thoughts out about like, okay, well, what could I say that's good about it? You know, I like the creative task of that challenge sometimes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the thing that I was thinking about is so sometimes as someone who makes a lot of like more nuanced commentary on social media, people who haven't heard the sort of part of the commentary that I'm responding to and are still stuck in like, I don't know, I'm going to call it proto commentary, just in the sense that like they haven't even heard the insights in a book like Steal Like an Artist. Like they still have like a, a, a layer earlier of thought, however you want to parse that out. But I'm grateful that this book exists because if I were to make a nuanced take about copying versus inspiration, I like if someone's like, actually, like, it's never been like that. Like, you can't steal. Like, no one ever said that. I like having a, a something you can point to to be like, hey, this book really resonated with a lot of creatives in the 2010s. Like, you know, you don't have to take my word for it because after all, I'm just an artist. But go read that and know that that is a prevalent thought. And so I think more than anything, I'm kind of glad that he very concisely, I will say I liked the book was, I'm, gl if, I'm glad if it was a book not targeted at everyone. I'm glad it was quick. <laughs> but I, I like having that as a starting point. And I will say like, it's some, just like it's the book reads to me, like kind of my whole frustration with quotes in general. I'm not anti quote, but I've just always been like, I, I like a good quote. I like literature. I like reading. I don't get me wrong, but I sometimes get frustrated with quotes because you'll see a quote that feels like, like it, it clearly reads one way, but then you'll see someone who has like totally different viewpoints as you use it and then an opposite in what feels to me very malicious way. And so for that reason, and maybe it's, again, because I'm Instagram 2010s was like all quotes, like pale pink girl boss, <laughs> um, like colored graphics with like just quotes, like random quotes, quotes on it. But I, 
I'm just the the book to me felt very like it very quotey in a way that I just it was not resonating with me. Totally. And to your point about back to like who it who it's for and the packaging of it all. This reminded me of like an anecdote from my family of when we were younger, we used to eat grilled cheese sandwiches a lot, but like the way we spoke, we just call them grill, grilled cheese sandwiches. And then my brother, he's the youngest of three. And he was like, I'm not a girl. So I need a boy cheese sandwich. And oh he would gosh. insist on a boy cheese sandwich. And I would not let that stand. Like I was like, no, you're eating a girl cheese sandwich. It's the same thing. Really and yeah. And, but I think even then I was frustrated with how much he identified with being a boy and all of that. And you said kind of like some people need to hear it from a straight white man. And that was definitely, I feel like this book of like creativity 101 for straight white men, especially like even the framing of like steel was so colonialist and let's take things from people without their consent in a way that you could have just chosen a different word all of the time, like inspiration, like, mm-hmm um source or like site quote but it was always like steel and even yes. like in the first chapter I was like appalled by the men he was quoting I even started like making notes like Pablo Picasso so yes yeah. oh my gosh like in the book about art your first quote is going to be Picasso art is theft I've added to the end of him comma pedophile womanizer yeah um, it's <laughs> yes like, that's we can't take one thing someone said and be like oh this is what you should base your whole belief system around without the context of who this person was and how Picasso stole from other stole from women and their creativity and artistry and to remove all of that and just be like one of the greatest artists whose name you recognize said this so it's fine and it's true was like kind of set the tone and then it just continued from there (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It felt like, you know, I want to be careful because concise and lazy, I feel like there's a bit of a fine line there. I have, you know, a lot of my struggle with like, especially art videos is like having to know what to cut and where to cut. And so like I, as another creative, I, I, I get it. I sympathize for him. Putting Picasso as one of your first quotes sort of establishes some credibility that I do think is very much worthy of criticism right now. So I get why he did that. And again, you know, I think it maybe fits the time a little bit, but but yeah, I mean, if we're going to go in and start with like the the nuance I wish was added, I think there could have been a conversation around like, let's define what we mean by steel. I, you know what? And even if he had titled it steel, like an artist and had like a prologue about like, Hey, this is who I'm having conversation with. Like, you know, and just like, even, even just like that would have been tremendously helpful. Cause like he gets towards the end of the book and he says, you know, stuff about like, make sure you're not in debt. And like, that to me always like completely grinds my gear because like the vast majority of people are not just in debt because they bought too many game cubes or like, you know, it's, it does, it's not as simple as that, but yeah, I mean, as far as like stealing, that's, it's actually a very, like, it's a conversation that like I have felt even with like multiple part podcast episodes, like I am barely scratching the surface of, because to be honest with you, it feels like pulling out a weed and like to say like, Hey, like stealing has ties to colonial culture feels like you're just like picking the top of the weed off and like the roots are still there because I think in a lot of ways getting into what has been stolen like upsets a tremendous part of society you know even in my like class work um, work about like class consciousness you know I find that I get a lot of resistance when I follow the logical reasoning of class consciousness which is people's labors should be 
adequately paid for. And a natural conclusion of that is land back and it's reparations. And I don't feel like it's even, I'm not turning, I'm not turning left or right. I'm following the logical conclusions. And then all of a sudden people get really hyper about it, but it's, it's because so much of our culture is based in theft. And so it's like, even now in the conversation, I'm like, like, if we really want to start getting to some honest truths, we kind of have to upend like everything. And I'm like, and that, yeah, I think that's a lot to contend with. (laughs) Agreed. And I think that this book just scratches the surface of all of that, but isn't self-aware as it could be about that and really wants to kind of be like a, this is what great artists have done. And this is kind of like art in the digital age. And I think that's a component too, that this is very much sitting at the intersection of tech and art. So a lot of like the art he's talking about creating while he invokes names like Pablo Picasso, I think he means more like for the internet, like Mm -hmm. things that will go online. But then even that it's like, that almost makes it worse because you're kind of, I think that the algorithms are capturing this bias that you're talking about. And the fact that stealing is baked into our culture and without addressing that, as we make this jump from real in the real world art to digital art, you're just going to further crystallize that into the algorithm. And so I think that this book needed a layer of like self-reflection that would have mean meant him not titling it steal like an artist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so curious, like, you know, what, like for you, would that be like a prologue or like, I, you know, cause I kept trying to think the whole time, like, how would I, because a lot of what he's giving advice about is advice that I have given through the years, but I, you know, I've always tried to, cause a lot, I mean, like, you know, my whole life is, is very like, if you're watching it, like a play is kind of like bootstrapsy. And like, that's why I'm always really sensitive about my story. Cause like it so quickly could get used and like turn into this book. Like it could turn into this book really quickly, but you know, I, to know my story is to know that I am an equal part, sure, hard work, you know, gumption, whatever, but also privilege and just like a tremendous amount of dumb luck. And so it's, you know, if I'm thinking about like how, how we write this book, does it mean like each chapter has to be long or does it mean that like a different kind of book needs to be written? And I think getting back to kind of what we talked about in the beginning where it's like, it's important to have a touchstone, like book, document, movie, movement, whatever, where we can respond to. And I think that that first touchstone piece of media we need to respond to really needs to talk about how we have all of this like theft in our history. And so like, for me, it's like, I would have to bake that into a book and it would be this big. And, you know, I just, yeah, I'm curious, like as another like incredibly creative, intelligent person, like if you could, if someone tasked you with saying kind of the message of the book, like how would you, what would you recommend someone do? if they tasked me with saying the message of the current book, or if they tasked me with like making a better message out of this book, better message, hundred <laughs> percent. I think that this book is about inspiration, but it becomes about how to copy and how to, and one form of inspiration. And I think yeah. that there are many forms of seeking in inspiration and finding inspiration. I think copying and replicating is definitely one of them. And I think this book talks a lot about that. So there is that, but I think that books and all books and just all conversations and interactions you have in general are like the tip of the iceberg of a bigger, broader ideology perspective, whatever. And I think that 
a lot of my critiques with this book are not with the book itself, but with this man's perspective. <laughs> yeah. So, no, I, I was trying, and that's why by the end of the book, I had a hard time being like positive. Cause I'm like, I know how he's meaning this, but like, it's yeah, totally. Exactly. Like, I feel like him and I could have a conversation and we would agree on a lot of things. And then he would be like, Oh, that's interesting. When I would explain my POV uh-huh. on the same exact thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even to your point about like, you, you were like, I would say a lot of the same exact things in his like intro where he has like all advice is autobiographical. I mm-hmm. literally wrote, sorry, would say something similar to this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, Sarah, yeah, yeah. I literally wrote, Sari would say something similar to this. Mm-hmm. Um, these ideas apply to anyone who's trying to inject some creativity into their life and their work that should describe all of us. And I said that you would say we are all artists, but he kind of puts himself in this position of like, you should do this. And he mm-hmm. is kind of like a gatekeeper. And by following his tips and tricks, you can be an artist too. Whereas I feel like you kind of say there is no gate. The gate is meta- the gate is in our heads. Yeah. We are all artists, not we should all like yep. become something that we're not. And I think that there was a lot of you need to become something versus I know you say like, find your style. And so I think a lot of this book is trying to reverse engineer success from existing creative people mm-hmm. without giving credit to their intrinsic talent, their creative process, and really just like the, their moment of success and how to mm-hmm. replicate that. I read another book from a man that's similar called Culturematics. Mm-hmm. And I have been reading this book for literally six years. I pick it up every like six months, read 10 pages and then put it down. And it's essentially this. He just talks about like cultural moments that were like viral or interesting and then talks about why they were viral or interesting as if by doing the same thing, you can replicate the same success. And that's just not, I feel like it works in the short term, but it doesn't work in the long term. And I think that by creating a framework around copying specifically for the digital age, you're, it's a problematic framework to create art. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, kind of getting to one, like another point about that is I think it it turns, you know, as someone who works, you know, a a big part of my job is like, I'm trying to sell stuff to people. I mean, luckily it's a luxury good. So I don't feel, I don't feel bad. (laughs) I'm not selling water or something, but, um, but you know, there's this big push. I read a lot of marketing stuff because I feel like marketing and like psychology are like kissing cousins. I don't know. They're, they're, They're very similar, but there's a lot of push. Marketing does really well in an individualistic culture, right? If you can, instead of saying, you know, that the problems are communal and we have to address, you know, that everyone is an artist, but not everyone gets equal opportunity to resources. And we would benefit from more people with more perspectives, having a voice in the conversation. And even people who are very privileged would benefit from that communal. Anyways, instead of saying that, it's much easier to sell a book and to sell your credibility if you make it an individual problem. It's like, you just need to stop being chicken about stealing. And I mean, I think I, I will, to give him the benefit of the doubt, I think a lot of what he's trying to do is sort of like, I <laughs> use this word again, like proto ego death. Like he's really trying to get at like a more rudimentary version of like a conversation around ego, right? Like you'll never like that. Whenever I was told in college, uh, in art school, you know, you will never make something unique. It wasn't like 
the framed like it is in this book. It was like, hey, like you'll never be like, no one is a creative genius. We're all responding communally. And I feel like he took what is good advice. And I would assume that a lot of the advice from the artists who I really like probably would have been in their full context have more around being communal and like being a part of like a society, but he picked out the parts that could be sold as individualism because selling individualism is really enticing, right? You don't need to do the labor of planting trees you'll never sit under, you know, AKA growing that community, investing in children, you know, et cetera. You can simply, again, follow this guideline and you'll be a creative genius. And I think, so I, I get it, I get it, but I also think that that's a dangerous road to go down. (laughs) Yes, completely. And I think that so much of it is because we're in capitalism and in order to kind of see the benefits of your creativity, you need to stand alone and you literally need to be able to prove it is yours and yours alone. If you're going to like profit off of it and call it original. And I was thinking a lot about like, what would like art and community and inspiration look like if we didn't have capitalism like would stealing even be a concept that we like it would I feel like we'd be like it'd be more morally wrong to steal you know yeah I I think it's like I think it would work both ways because whenever I I did my um, episode about stealing versus inspiration I started finding myself kind of looking at uh, so there's this trope in art history about that I'm sure you've heard it's like it's kind of been played out you know that a part of like western eurocentric art and art history and art documentation is that you know these white painters let's take a Gauguin another completely trash artist (laughs) I mean his art is great but like he's like oh anyways the worst so Gauguin goes um he's a post-impressionist and he goes to Tahiti I believe I will show note it if I'm incorrect And he, you know, makes art about the women and sort of takes from their culture as far as like their style and stuff. And we see in museums, like art from the same time period, Tahitian art, you know, will be put up in a museum and it won't have the artist labeled. It'll just have Tahitian art, you know, no, no person kind of belonging to that. And then Western art made around the same time inspired from that will have, you know, Paul Gauguin. And there's this idea that like in this labeling and without the context, what we're saying is that, you know, there's this white male genius in the West, and then there's just like these cultures and it's, it's an power imbalance. I'm, I'm greatly simplifying it, oversimplifying it. But I was thinking about this in my episode is that in other cultures, it's, it's a mixture between like, they're not recording the names because Western people have an issue with seeing people as humans. And that's obviously its own issue, but also in a lot of these other cultures, and I only barely scratched the surface, so take everything with a grain of salt. There was more of this idea that art belonged to the community, that it wasn't like, you know, Uncle Bob who made this art, even though he crafted it with his hands, but it was the people who were picking the crops and feeding it to him and to watching his children during the day, that that art belonged to the all of them in the same way that it belonged to the actual artisan and craftsperson. And again, I'm, I'm just scratching the surface, but I, I think that it's, you know, I think stealing is more egregious, but I also think it's like, who we credit for the art is also different. I think it's like on both sides, it's it's not like this in, in multiple ways in the book. Completely agree. And I wanted to talk about like credit too, in terms of like who makes things like palatable for mass consumption. And like yeah. in our ecosystem currently, that tends to be who gets credit. Um, one, there's two TikToks I 
two TikTok things I want to talk about. First was that TikTok I told you I saw where it was like Leonardo versus, was it Raphael? Uh, Raphael, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how basically the guy who was making the TikTok said that Raphael got popular because he was essentially a more reliable Leonardo da Vinci. And basically like if you wanted da Vinci, he was like maybe wouldn't finish something. He really got caught up in like the philosophical of it all. Whereas like Raphael saw what da Vinci was doing and kind of ran with it and would do it kind of more formulaically. And I feel like that is the secret to success online as well of like you see someone doing something really well that comes from who they are as a person and their creativity. And then people take that and make it slightly more palatable. And then they're the ones who get credited. Like there's this one creator who I follow, K-Not Bay, who she mm-hmm. made that sound. Um, I don't know who, like, so I already done told you chilling ass bitches. Like the girls that get it, get it. The girls that don't, don't. And it was just like the yes. best. And just like yes. the way she said it, it's just m- music, right? Yes. And then someone else, a white girl came along, made the same sound without profanity. And she blew up and everyone was like, oh my God, you made this sound. And that's par for the course, like erasure of black women, unfortunately. But I also think that there's something there about her making it more palatable, not just because she's white and there's so much racism, but like removing the profanity as kind of like a way to make, to open up the audience for who's receiving that. But it also makes it less authentic and it does, it's not as melodic. It doesn't hit the same. And yeah, it's very kids bot version of this. Yeah. And would it go, would it have gone viral if it weren't for the original existing and being there and we'll never actually know but we're seeing I'm seeing this happen more and more like Amelia Diamoldenberg and Bobby Antoff Amelia created this really interesting new type of format where she interviews people kind of like a date and it's kind of like making fun of the way that people on late night have to flirt with the late night host so she as a woman makes all these people flirt with her but it's like super awkward and she plays mm-hmm. into that and then Bobby Antoff comes and basically does the same thing and repackages it as her thing and just makes it with bigger artists more palatable and then it's she's getting all of this credit for doing something that but Amelia did all the groundwork and all the legwork of like experimenting Mm -hmm. and figuring out what would work and what didn't and we saw her go viral with one success Mm -hmm. after years of trying and then that's what Bobby was able to take and replicate. Yeah. So. I no, th- those are both incredibly astute and I think completely capture like the the contemporary frustration because it's, you know, like it's it, this conversation gets very esoteric very quickly. But, you know, I do think too, I think it's an important thing is like, okay, well w- what does this look like in real time? Like we can all say like yes, the most important thing is to like set the record straight with history, you know, make sure that we get that at established. But, you know, how do you deal with that and you know, I think the interesting thing with the internet is I actually think TikTok has shifted kind of the way we view crediting and because it's interesting because like legally it's pretty strict, you know, it's, I, I, I mean, I want to be careful, but you, like, if you copy like an entire format style, you know, there's a, there's a case for a lawsuit. Now PR wise, it may not be the best move. A lot of people, you know, Disney doesn't go after every Etsy seller because it's a bad move. So there's a lot of people who don't, just because someone doesn't sue someone, it isn't because um, there's not a case. It's because you're balancing PR and legal at the same time. Um, but, you know, TikTok has it to where trends, like you can go back and click the audio and that's, I, I feel like when I saw that, I was like, that's a fantastic um, innovation because, you know, when I've had a body of work stolen, it's never that I want 
people to not make it or even not to make money off of it. It's just, I want someone to be able to have all the facts and be like, if you want to support the original and a lot of people operate out of integrity, you'd be surprised how many people will pay the extra money for the original. Um, they can go back and find it. It's not that hard. Right. And so, you know, I, I feel like we have the potential to, to do better as a culture and make sure that the original people are credited correctly. I think, unfortunately, books like this, The Steal Like an Artist, make it to where people are loaded with ammo about like, nothing is original. And then like, and then, and then that's the end of the conversation. And, you know, th that frustrates me as an artist. I can't, you know, I, I can't speak to that too much other than to say that I think it's actually like morally wrong. You know, I get why people do it and I get that people don't have the time and people, you know, TikTok is like a party and you want to keep it going. But like at the end of the day, like it does mess with people's, uh, you know, finances and, and, you know, their career trajectory and, you know, in a world that's very, you know, cutthroat, you know, it's financially hard. I, I think that those are conversations worth happening. Um, but for, for some reason, I mean, I guess I know why, but like our culture is just really resistant to having those conversations, but they're vitally important to have. And in addition to being detrimental to like people's finances I also think it's really bad for morale like I think that we talked about like it being a community and an ecosystem and I think that's part of why TikTok is so fun is because it really is like a group project and it's kind of like facilitated that sense of community um, and made it easy to create in that community but if you're being generous with your ideas and your creativity and you don't see an emotional return on investment there. I think that that also is a negative for the creative space as a whole. Like, I feel like part of why this has been so fun is because there's like a free exchange of ideas here that you and I are like very generous with each other and our time and our thoughts and ideas, because yeah. we don't feel that one person's taking advantage of the other. But if you come into a situation with the bottom line and looking to not be taken advantage of, it's not as productive and it's not as creative and you don't have a free flow of ideas and it's just not as good for all of us like the art suffers across the board when that happens absolutely and also it's you know it, it also comes down to people are more afraid to share their ideas and their art you know especially if you know you're sitting on a good idea which you know is hard but I'm, I am positive when the girls that get it, get it. When she heard mm -hmm. that back, there was that like goosebumpy feeling of like, this is good. Cause it is, it is like, I'll link it in the show notes, but it's musical it, and, it, and it has become a cultural phenomenon. I hope she trademarked it. I hope so. <laughs> I have to fight the urge to like, anytime someone pops off with like a sound to like yeah. not send them like a whole, like you really ought to trademark this because blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I, well, I we not... could sit here and potentially argue that she's responsible for the whole girl thing that's happening right now. Like I, absolutely think she is and is she getting mentioned in think pieces is <laughs> no. are people reaching out to her with it's also it, it also completely comes down to whose labor do we think is is worthy of that credit and that becomes yep. a whole other you know identity issue it's like well if it's a woman if it's you know someone from the black community if it's uh you know someone in a different language speaking culture like it's just all of these other intersections that it slows down production and creativity for people who are increasingly marginalized and it speeds it up for those who aren't. And anytime that happens, I don't, I don't know why people aren't like, like ringing alarm bells about it because uh, you know, yeah. Anyways, the whole thing just absolutely. Yeah. Frustrates me tremendously. Uh, you know, it, 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 so like, okay. So if you, 
come up with something that's creative and you want to share it, but you don't have a link tree or you don't have anything set up, or maybe you're an account who has under 10,000 10, followers where you can't set up a link tree. Like for some reason, like you don't have the infrastructure set up. If you don't have that, the internet, and I've seen it happen, will blame you for like not being prepared to capitalize off of your creative property. And because the internet kind of doesn't have everyone's back. And again, that increases as more marginalizations you you endure. And so it's just like the whole thing, we, I feel like sometimes we'll see a situation where we'll quote like Stuart Simple and what's the other guy's name? I always forget his name, but he is the artist. People are going to be yelling at the <laughs> podcast right now, but he's the artist who did the bean and he copyrighted the technology for Vanta Black. Um, anyways, Anish Kapoor, there we go. But we see these two very powerful, very established artists kind of going at war with each other over intellectual property rights. And the whole thing was a farce because Stuart Simple, who said that An Anish Kapoor could not own Vanta Black, knew that he was not copywriting a color. He was copywriting a technology. It's the way the carbon fibers are structured. And because they knew that it would get people riled up, it sort of feels like a cried wolf situation. And so people at the end of the day, they're like, who cares? These two guys are fine. They're loaded. There's bigger fish to fry. And so we write off all you know, problems around copyright and inspiration as just people getting their ego wrapped up in it. And what ends up happening is we ignore the real manifestations of the inequality of our society because we want to write it off as simple and it's not simple. Totally, completely. I think a lot of people think as someone who's like in the weeds on this stuff that a lack of credit comes from someone deciding, oh, I don't want to give this marginalized person the credit that they deserve when really it's erasure. It's somewhere Mm -hmm. along the line. Someone just did not make the transfer of this person's name as the originator or the inventor or whatever. And it's not just ego. It's it's also you lose a piece of what the in- integrity of the idea or the piece of art when you divorce it from its origin. And I think that because we're so focused on products and like the actual physical item, we also discount the importance of ideas and ideas cannot actually be owned in the way that yeah. we want to believe that they can. But that's, I would say almost equally as important to the art that people are creating. Like, I feel like your art is imbued with ideas and meaning beyond just like paint on the canvas and like the actual artistry of it. And while we, you know, how I was like, there's things out there that we can't measure. Like, I think that that is important too. And that having the ability to go back to you as the origin source of something is important. If someone was inspired by something that someone was inspired by you, you know, like being able to get back to the source is going to actually be important down the line. And so by erasing these sources, we're actually hindering this kind of exploration that he says that he wants to encourage, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, you know, another thing is that like, well, who are, one thing I kept getting frustrated with in college, because we had to do like a whole semester almost of master studies, which are just, you basically, it's very, it's not copying, but it looks like copying from the outside. It looks like copying, but it's, you go and you try to study about the artist's process and you use their painting as reference and you you try to remake the painting, but like not, not just looking like it, you, the whole process anyways. And whenever I would go to research artists and my, my painting professor pointed this out too, cause he was a pretty, you know, pr- progressive guy. And, but you know, you only have documentation of people 
who are like, you know, in the West and, you know, rich and typically white. And, you know, so you, you end up coming to dead ends. Like, okay, so what's, what's one guy? Not Kaplinsky. Oh my gosh. People are going to, art history nerds are like going to be so mad at me. (laughs) Um, The Russian guy starts with a K. I'll think of it in five seconds. But anyways, he started making these really abstract pieces that were on black backgrounds with lots of bright colors. And it was very abstract. And he was inspired by these women who are doing needlework on black velvet and the contrast of that. Now, he was sourced as being like, just like he was divinely inspired until eventually some, you know, insight about who he was inspired by. Someone drew the connections. They're like, well, the women in his village were kind of doing that, that they finally were able to pull that together. And I think, you know, getting back to the erasure of it all is it's like, it's a self-enforcing thing. Like you forget the people and then the people don't get credit and they don't look like the people who would get credited. And it just kind of keeps getting worse. And I always like to, whenever I talk about stuff, try to leave with like action steps. So if you're listening to this and you're like overwhelmed at just like the injustice of it all, like first, yeah, I feel you. But second, I think as an artist, I can say like, just in comment sections, like kindly even just being like, Hey, this is the original artist not starting beef, not trying to get anyone to take it down. Everyone is on their own journey. Totally. That is helpful. Like but being able, if someone wants to look and find the original is helpful, you know, talking about it and holding nuance for when people are doing something that seemingly feels very egotistical. They're trying to claim ownership of an idea, right or wrong. Having the bandwidth to not immediately jump to, well, they're a narcissist is helpful. Also, what is helpful is following, supporting, viewing, upholding, if you are a safe person, like the art, the creativity of people who don't look like white men in power, you know, and and and, and all of those things, you know, we're not going to fix everything right away, but it's going to be a lot better than reading a book like this and commenting nothing is original anytime someone's like, everyone's stealing from me, you know, right or wrong, whatever. <laughs> Completely agree. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so hard. Cause I don't want to just like complain and make the world seem, I think, you know, I, another idea I always think about with the copying versus inspiration is, you know, what would like, um, what would the utopia look like? You know, when people get mad, it's like, well, I don't want to have to like credit people. I don't want to have to dig and find the people if I'm going to share this post or, you know, even like, like with repost accounts, like I remember years ago, I mean, not that long ago, five years ago, there was all this drama about when reposts would repost someone, they would tag them, but they didn't always ask for permission. And then they would repost a repost. And there was always stuff about that. And people would always get mad that the reposters had to do this labor of like finding the original source. And my rebuttal to that is like, if that's frustrating to you, like then work hard to make the world more equal where credit doesn't mean someone's life or death. Like if if that's not the route you want to go, then like invest all of your energy into making the world equal because the utopia of all this is credit doesn't mean someone gets fed or not. You know, being quoted in the New York Times because you you kicked off the girl trend could be huge. You could be asked to like come on interviews. You could be asked to um, partner up with a merch line. Like there is power leverage to that kind of visibility that those institutions hold. And I, I think by not sort of understanding that it is a power dynamic we're talking about when we were talking about copying versus inspiration, um, at best is ignorance. <laughs> you know, I would love to be in a world where everyone's needs needs are met and everyone is treated truly equally. And we credit doesn't mean the end of the world. Then yeah, this can be kind of a, you know, a superficial conversation. This could be a 
not that bit, not that passionate of an issue, but it, we don't live in a world like that. We live in a world that's deeply unequal and deeply unfair and deeply violent to, to people. And so, you know, and I hate to make it all that heavy right now, but like, and if, if you don't want to do the work of crediting correctly, work on the other end, make the world more fair and equal. I love that. And I also think that I would argue that the method of creation he puts forth in this book is not creatively fulfilling. Um, I don't know if you would agree or not, but to be seeking just like success based on other people's success is eventually, even if you reach it, it's going to feel like a mismatch. And I talk about this, I talk about creator burnout a lot and like what I've noticed of creator burnout. And the thing that I've noticed is that creators get the most burnt out when there's a mismatch between who they are as a person and their audience. And the creators who have found the most longevity seems like their audience is all people who they would be friends with. So I think that when you feel like you're in service to other people or trying to mask or be something that other people want you to be, that's work and that's labor. And that's kind of what he's positing here a little bit. Um, But when you just are who you are and just doing that loudly, that's a different skill and a different muscle. And you attract people who are more aligned with who you are, who are like, I'm really proud of the audience I've created on TikTok because I am very much like a nuanced person who has like very nuanced values, but I do a lot of hot takes. And so I think you could come to one of my hot takes and be like, you're awful. But if you follow my whole account or like even watch a few videos, you get a more nuanced perspective. And I think that that's the art that truly really resonates with people and really resonates with creators when they feel like they're proud of the stuff that they're making and they would want to watch their own content back. And so while I, I think that success through replicating the success of others is definitely one strategy and it's definitely a way to, you know, get inspiration and cool data on what works with a given audience. But if your goal is not to make money, if your goal is to honestly like feel like you contributed something that you're proud of, I think that you have to do a little bit of deeper looking into your creative process and what that looks like. Yes. And I want to like put a like gold star next to that because I feel like that is such good insight for, you know, if you take away something from this episode as a creative, like definitely listen to that. And and the whole, like, I can tell you from personal experience and I know I'm one person, but like, that's how it is with me. The minute I start to feel not aligned with my audience. Yeah. Like I would even go so far as to say like mental health kind of issues sort of even crop up. And maybe it's because I let things get far, who knows, but that's definitely how it manifests in me. And I, I feel like, you know, twofold one, you know, I think there's a distinction between, I think, unfortunately, most people do try to copy the success of other people. And I, I want to be careful because like, I get it. I get it. You know, you're trying to pay your bills too. You want your dad to think you're a real artist. There are plenty mm-hmm. of like valid reasons why people do that. I get it. I get it. But you're not going to have a, a long, you're not going to be building up the muscle that is going to sustain you as an artist. If you don't learn to do two things, one, divorce your interests from success. If they happen to align with success, great. Sometimes that happens. That's wonderful. But you have to start to gravitate towards things. I feel like maybe in the book, he tries to get at that, but he never makes it a clear point. And he keeps on bringing success and quotes about success into the fold. But there's value to his idea about like having a stash. I do that. I think that's great. I think living your life and being aware of something called like glimmers, which is like the opposite of a trigger. I don't say it's a buzzword, but 
things that you're just like out in the world and you see, and you're like, for some reason, I love that. I really love that. I don't know why collecting those things. Great. Fantastic. Powerful. Keeping focus on success will be your downfall. And then the other thing that this book doesn't mention, and I think you just kind of got on that, um, is, is the value of like looking within and like, yeah, aiming for a little bit of originality. Now I get it. You, in the beginning, you do sort of have to copy other people in the sense of, I always think of it like my metaphors, like if there's a huge ocean sized swimming pool and you do as a new baby artist have to pick a point to jump in at, you know, some people swim away from that point faster than others. Some people stay in that wheelhouse until they develop their own sense. I get that. But I think sometimes with conversations like this, and certainly the way I've seen them manifest on the internet is people sort of just get lazy about it. And I, and again, I get why you get why people do that, but there is value in sort of looking within and push yourself to be creative. In the book, he talks about like the creativity behind constraint. That's great. Make one of your constraints to push yourself to be more creative, push yourself. That's something that like, I, again, no one is creative entirely in a vacuum. I get that. I totally co-sign that idea, but I will say that something I've always been really intentional of is trying really hard to be, I'll just say like authentic to myself. I feel like that's a pretty good way of putting it, but just, you know, it doesn't mean I have to be different from everyone else. I'm not responding to everyone else, but like, I won't go on the explore page, for example, I I won't touch it with a 10 foot pole, not because I think it's bad. It does make me some like weirdly sad sometimes if I, you know, it's hard to see everyone on their best day all in a row. Like it's just (laughs) not great, but because I, it's like whenever I write something out, I'll write what I feel and then I'll go research it and then I'll reevaluate my initial thought on it. And sometimes there's little nuggets that I didn't see anyone talk about that I'm like, that's actually gold. And I'm glad I didn't research everything first. So I have both of those insights. And that's kind of how I try to be an artist too. Like I trust my own like internal instincts and stuff. And then I do my due diligence and research and then I sort of meld them together. <laughs> that's how I try anyways. I, I kind of do something very similar in my like approach to anal- analysis and like looking at trends. And then also something I say that's so important. And I think is part of why I didn't like this book is like, I have to be hyper aware of where my perspective biases are in order to give like objective truths. And sometimes I'll even caveat things. Like if I'm working on something about Taylor Swift, for instance, I'll be like, full disclosure, I'm a fan. So like, here's like what I think and here's what I found in the research, but also I am a fan. So this is coming from a fan angle. And he does say this is advice to my younger self, but I think that we all need to not only keep our own perspective limitations in mind, but those of other people. And sometimes those are what we have to bring to the conversation. And like, that's was kind of, I feel like kind of what we took away from his book of like, what those people think of yeah, you know, yeah. this um, conversation around quote unquote stealing. Yes. Yes. So the takeaway here is don't in fact steal. <laughs> A lot of artists are really bad because they steal. It's so funny because I feel like it would be really cute to see someone in a cheeky way. I didn't think Austin could, could hold up to it. He's kind of like known in the Austin community. I should have disclosed that bias too. It's not a huge one, just that like, you know, people know he's fine. There's nothing, it's all good. Nothing, nothing wrong. But, you know, I would love someone to make like a, like a reason why, like a a compliment to this (laughs) book. I would love to see someone kind of cite a lot of the artists and be like, actually this guy like stole everything from his wife. (laughs) So anyways, unfortunately, I started I started doing that. And then I was like, this would take way too long. Like on page 15, he quotes Marcel Duchamp 
but I think he literally got that from Brainy Quote. Like I could yeah. not find anywhere that was other than brainyquote.com. Um, so <laughs> like I said, it's very like piecemeal. Um, and I think one thing too, like the masculine approach and like he quotes David Bowie, the only art I'll ever study is stuff that I can steal from. And this is one of the points where I was like, this could also be inspires me. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think this just goes back to like my idea of like men don't need anything and like they don't need other people. And I, it's just so not how I think I look at things. And I think that he has points where he, I agree, like chapter eight, be nice. The world is a small town. Mm -hmm. And he talks about like why it's important to network and like have a community, but it's basically just about emotional intelligence without calling it that. So there's a lot of ideas in this book that I think are resonant, but then they take a very white masculine shift that I think is counterproductive. Yeah, totally. And it reminds me of my, my qualm, my like, I don't know, my issue, my perspective on like, anytime I read a book, that's like, you know, the trick to life is like, you get up at four and you grind and (laughs) any of those books, I always like, I always sort of, I I like them a little bit because at least they kind of feel honest, like in the sense that it's like, it takes that tremendous amount of effort to sort of overcome whatever it is, lack of connections, blah, 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 starting late in life, who knows, whatever. But, but yeah, I, I had a hard time getting over it again. I'm glad it exists. I will probably, if I ever have a student and they want to know, I'd be like, okay, we'll start by reading this book. You know, it's, it's on YouTube. You can go look it up. But yeah, at the end of the day, it actually more than anything, and maybe this is a good thing, inspires me to want to like sit down and write more about inspiration because I love what you said earlier about like, okay, well, what would you, how would you approach? And you said, I would just make it about inspiration because I think that is so much more richer. Inspiration comes with, I think, emotional intelligence kind of built in. I think it comes with sort of divine sources, however you want to interpret that built in where steel is. And I get that it was a flash word. And I get that his publisher may have been like, definitely name it that. But I, yeah, I think that, I think, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to age well <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. And also I, to give myself like a pat on the back, I have kind of made my whole career about hunting inspiration, not just for myself, but culture at large, like so much of my process for trend forecasting is looking at who has the potential to be very inspiring. So it's like the artists that maybe no one has found yet, but they, mm-hmm. when they do, will be very inspiring. Why? What is the idea that's resonating here? It's this. And then I can pick up patterns of like potential inspiration. So I'm kind of always looking at what's going to be inspiring people next year. And that's yeah. how I can derive what the trends are going to be. Because like, I have no idea how people are going to internalize that, what the behavior is going to be, but I can pick out the inspiration sources and then that can kind of feed my prediction. Yeah, I I love that. And that's why I think I I really appreciate your insight on a lot of, you know, the book, because I come at it as an artist. So I come at it with, with a tremendous amount of baggage and I have to be really hard to not, you know, go over the top with that. But yeah, I I just appreciate kind of your take on it. And that's another plug, you know, as we end the three-month summer book club series, if you've listened to this, like I cannot encourage y'all enough, follow 
Megan, follow trend forecasters, follow people. You know, I will say the book, I think says this in adjacent sort of different industries, you know, what does inspiration like look like? I don't know. I feel like it's like, it could be its own book. It's its own. It needs to be its own separate beast, but, um, you know, finding people who are sensitive, who are aware, who are intuitive and just, just check in. Like, it's such a helpful thing as an artist, because a lot of visual art for me like do I get inspired by other visual art certainly but a lot of it is like feeding your brain new ideas experiencing new thoughts um re-examining our culture in different lights those kinds of exercises are you know a lot of where I think good inspiration comes from I'm speaking off the hip but that's my take on it (laughs) I completely agree and you know how I've said that I feel like humanity is like a group project and I think that looking at it like inspiration is definitely more aligned with that perspective. Yeah, I think so too. And I think specifically, last thing I'll say, but like it with our culture is one thing I've always, um, you know, kind of tried to do with my work is like, I don't know. um, So especially with like my glitter strip malls and like my gilded series a little bit has been like, well, what is like the dominant American culture without sort of treating like consuming inspiration but like you know I don't know I don't have it flushed out it's still art so it still kind of exists in this nebulous space in my mind but you know a little bit of it is like give art the dominant culture the art it kind of deserves and like maybe you know when people are like kind of repulsed by those series a little bit of me wants to be like well this is what we have because we haven't actually done the work to find true inspiration within our culture we've only consumed other people's inspiration so again it's not a flushed out idea but it is something that i'm juggling in that body of work well it's been a, a it's been a complete joy to watch so excited to see you continue to work that out Well, thank you. Awesome. (laughs) Well, Megan, thank you again so much. Virgo like Beyonce on TikTok, Manicured Shelf on Instagram. Also, Megan, you give out the best book recommendations. I've been just like scribbling them down. I'm on a big reading kick right now. So I've really enjoyed it. Definitely. Is there anything else you want to say to folks before we sign off for the season? No, just thank you for listening to me. Like I said, reading books and talking about them is just my favorite thing ever. So this has been so fun to do. Yay. Thank you. Happy reading y'all. Let me know if there's other books you guys want me to keep on my radar. Maybe next year we'll do another summer series, but have a great rest of your season. I'll talk to everyone in January. And I want to say a final thank you to everyone who's listening and a huge thank you to Megan E. Collins. I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed filming these episodes with you. I found myself looking forward to them all week, all month even. And everyone listening, please, I cannot urge you enough. If you want some great insight, trend forecasting, and just like humorous content, follow Megan, check out her podcast. I will link it. And yeah, take care. Thank you, everyone. I will see you in January.